Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on a bright but cool autumn day here in the capital is Laura Moxon. Laura is a veterinary surgeon and director at Rydale Vets, a rural mixed veterinary practice based in the North Yorkshire Moors. Um, Laura, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Laura. Thank you for your time as well. Um, Normally, um, at this point in the programme, we tend to dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle. Because for leaders within all walks of life, it has proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it? But for yourselves, as essentially a veterinary practice, to what extent has all of this affected things? Um, so back in March, we had to make decisions about, um, you know, which staff we furloughed and, and which staff we kept on. Um, we were given guidance by the British Veterinary Association and the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons as to what we, we could and couldn't do during the lockdown. And essentially, we were allowed on the small animal side just to do, so that's pet animals, um, just to do emergency work only. So actually animals that were suffering at that very moment. Um, so very much like we do normally out of hours, but, but all of the time. Um, so that significantly, significantly cut um, our workload um, in that we didn't do any sort of routine vaccinations, checks, um, blood tests, things like that. Um, and normally we'd see animals that were on regular medication back regularly, um, but we were given permission to remotely pres- prescribe um, medication. So. Um, over the phone or, or by video consult. So we, we started to do some um, a few video consults. And they're not that easy with animals. I mm. think possibly easier for doctors. Um, so largely telephone consults and obviously uh, triaging animals over the phone to decide whether we actually needed to see them in person. Um, we're a mixed practice, so um, a, a proportion of our practice is farm animal as well. And um, on that side, we were given the guidance to carry on uh, largely as normal mm. um, with some, some routine work, um, such as um, you know removing horns or, or you know foot trimming or something like that that um, would wait. Um, that we wouldn't do that, but la- largely carry on with um, what we call routine fertility work, which is going out to dairy farms. Um, and helping the farmers to, um, you know, keep the animals in calf so that milk production stays um, as normal. Um, so the farm animal vets were actually classed as key workers from the very start, um, but the small animal uh, team weren't. Um, so that's kind of how it how it works. So a lot of our receptionists and, and nurses and student nurses who need to be working with someone else um, were furloughed. Um, so it, you know, it was very difficult to decide um, how many staff we would need, who we could furlough. Um, and and you know who had maybe health problems that might you know we might be worried about having them at work with close interaction with the public. Mm. Um, so all those de- decisions were had to be made um, one evening, um, and um, we know were quite challenging to make. So that was that was the first sort of stressful component. 
Um, I actually took some time off as well to homeschool my children and kind of manage things remotely, as a lot of people are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've got two um, colleagues who are directors as well, and they both stayed working. Um, And so we managed to run things like that. And then since then, um, we've we've managed to get everybody now, um, apart from one lady, um, we've got everybody largely back at work. Um, They're maybe not doing the same hours that they were doing, but they're largely back at work now. Um, but obviously we're now faced with a, a rise in cases. Um, we still have our clients outside of the practice, so it's a bit like driving in veterinary surgery. Um, we had plans in August to bring the clients back in, um, but then we had um, a case within our practice family of staff um, which delayed things. Um, we had very good weather in September, which meant that um, having people outside wasn't too much of a problem. And then obviously we've had this surge in cases, so we're still faced with our clients being outside of the practice. Um, and we take the animal from them and bring the animal in. And the animal's examined and treated inside um, and then taken back to the client outside. So it, it's been challenging for some clients because obviously they're, they're anxious about their pet being taken in and they can't see you know, what we're doing and they have to trust us much more than they would normally do. Um, but because we we cannot social distance from each other, so um, if a vet's working, you know, with a nurse, they they can't social distance from each other um, while they're examining the animal or while they're treating the animal or doing an anaesthetic or surgical procedure. You, you're within that sort of one meter distance from each other. Um, we've had to sort of limit our interactions with people as much as possible because if we do have a positive case, um, we would have to self isolate for two weeks and. We, there's a concern that that would, you know, close our business down. Mm. Um, we 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 run our own out of hours service, so we have uh, two vets on call, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and we have to maintain that emergency service. So we've had to protect that as much as possible by keeping that distance from the clients. Um, so within the team, we're working in, in small groups. Um, so one vet with one nurse and staying in sort of one room to do their work. Um, and working little groups like that, um, and within within our team to try and reduce sort of interaction. But it it's been quite a challenging way to work because normally we're mm. we're a really lively lively team. We socialise together. We have our lunch together, and um, we've we've lost that sort of interaction. And I think we have taken that very human social interaction for granted, haven't we, certainly pre-pandemic. And I think there are certainly arguments to sort of keep conventional workplaces as they are to a degree going forward, even when we're thinking about changing up our working practices, because there are mental health and wellbeing arguments on both sides. As you also um, demonstrated there as well with um, sort of the challenge of the remote consultations, the remote triage, doing everything remotely isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach as well that does also have its pitfalls Mm. Mm. thinking about um sort of how this has affected people mentally and the fact that that sort of social interaction has been inhibited um just how has it been sort of managing yourself and managing those that you're working with laura from that mental health point of view because i can imagine there's been a lot of anxiety as well yeah there has and i think just as a background you know mental health is is a big problem within the veterinary profession Mm. and that's sort of well well recognized and we have them um, good support from the, the Royal College and they've tried various, you know, initiatives to help with that. Um, but, you know, as, as veterinary professions, we are very prone to mental health problems because we tend to be um, perfectionists. We tend to have imposter syndrome. Mm. We tend to have, um, you know, work long hours, unsociable hours. And um, we work a lot on our own as well. Um, and it's a very demanding job, both sort of physically, emotionally, 
mentally. Um, you know, there are risks associated with it. So, you know, you know, on the animal farm side, there's risk of injury. Um, and the small animal side, obviously, you can you can get bitten or scratched by an animal or a disease if we can catch. So, um, there are, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of an inherently stressful job anyway. Um, and then this has come along and obviously that's, that, you know, made it even even worse and exacerbated some of these, these problems. Um, I think clients have been um, very anxious. Um, and so, um, you know, although the vast majority have been absolutely lovely and, and so kind to us, we, we have had, you know, a small minority getting very angry with um, how, how we're working, um, very stressed, very upset. So people are more likely to, to cry during the consultation. Um, than they would normally be, and and obviously that's emotionally taxing for the for the staff as well. Mm. Um, um, doing things like euthanasia, for example, um, in this situation, that that's been challenging. Um, and we decided early on that we weren't happy with the situation where we would take take the animal away from the owner for for the euthanasia. So we found a way of, of working whereby we administer the the lethal injection through a very long um, drip line, so we can stand. Um, Two meters away from the owners, and the owners can um, cuddle the animal while while we put it to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're largely doing that in people's gardens um, and things like that, rather than going into people's houses. But we're, tr- we're trying to make that work so it's not another stressful thing. Because I think as vets, we we want to do that kind of procedure in a way that's not going to cause even more upset because that has a secondary effect on on us and our mental mm-hmm. health. Um, we've had quite a lot of staff obviously very anxious about um, the situation, especially when there's been cases within our. We've had we have had had a staff member test positive, mm. um, so that has caused a lot of stress. And I think they've found it difficult to understand the rules. Um, so largely, I felt my my responsibility is to get a really good grip of the rules and really understand them as they've changed, so that whatever happens, I can say, no, this is the guidance. This is what we have to follow. Um, and, and so we get it, we get it right at every stage. Um, so I think that's been, and just trying to keep everybody calm and say, no, this is this is what we're doing, and we're doing everything we can, um, and we have to carry on like this. And just trying to really every day trying to pick everybody up and keep every everybody going. That's largely what um, the three the three directors that we have have been doing. Um, every day face uh, new challenges really because we've had a lot of staff self isolating because they've got children with high temperature say waiting for a test um so every day we've kind of had to rejig who's at work and who's working where and what what we might be doing that day because of, of staff shortages which i think is affecting um people all, all over the country um and then it's then keeping everybody that's at work going because we might be short staff that day mm. um and then it might be more stressful so making sure everybody is, is getting a lunch break making sure checking in with everybody make sure everybody's all right um, which we try and do anyway, but that's, there's been a lot more of that. Um, we use um, WhatsApp groups a lot to communicate with staff, which mm-hmm. has been good, um, especially with the staff that have been furloughed to try and keep in touch with them. Um, and we do discuss cases um, between the vets, um, you know, on, on WhatsApp and try, so, so that someone stays on call on their own. There's always got the backup of more senior vets to discuss cases with so that it isn't as stressful. So, those are the things we've sort of done. But a lot of the things we used to do, which was having meetings where we would maybe have afternoon tea together, mm. um, lunch together. Um, we, we used to have sort of Monday morning um, briefings where we'd all get together, find out what everybody's been doing and, and what we're going to do this week. And, and we, you know, we largely can't do any of that. So that's been tricky. 
It has certainly uh, been a challenge. And what you've essentially told me there, Laura, just sort of summarises some of the very deep challenges Mm -hmm. that leaders have had to contend with. They've had to step up and keep everybody motivated, try and keep the anxiety down and the morale up, but also drive adapting and innovating behind the scenes to make things work under new guidelines and new circumstances. And it is very, very difficult. Now, um, just channeling your um, sort of um, expertise for a moment, uh, just because I know that there might well be one or two sort of um, concerned pet owners out there, um, just because there have been one or two reports of um, sort of cats in particular contracting the uh, the virus. Is there any sort of real risk there um for people of getting yeah. it from their pets or vice versa or is that yeah. something which isn't really going to happen do you feel yeah well so there is evidence that a cat that's you know been in close contact with somebody with coronavirus um could contract coronavirus so, as far as i'm aware there haven't been any um sort of seriously ill animals with the disease and it's largely they've caught it from their owners um, but the advice is if you if you do have coronavirus is to keep your cat inside. So essentially a cat self-isolates while you self-isolate mm-hmm. because there's this very small risk that the cat goes outside um, and someone else picks it up and it could have coronavirus on it on its Thursday. Um, they also advise that if you do have coronavirus, you maybe don't have, say, your cat um, you know, snuggled up with you as much, maybe not in the bed with you and things like that, so that it's less likely to have it on it. Um, but as far as I'm aware, there isn't any evidence of a cat passing it to another cat. Um, but I think to be on the safe side, you know, you should self-isolate your cat with, with you. Um, we have a protocol for if we suspect um, that a cat has got coronavirus, so we, we've been sort of given advice on what to do. Um, I don't know any vets that have had that suspicion. We, we certainly haven't at the moment. So, yeah, I think it's a, a lesser concern, um, mm. really. That's good, of course, just to maybe settle a few nerves that might well be yeah, out there over yeah, the issue, yeah. absolutely, during this yeah. time especially. Yeah, and, yeah um, I mean, pet, mm. pets have become so important to people um, mm. at the moment. You know, um, you know, you've probably heard lots of people getting puppies. The price of puppies has escalated. Um, but pets as, as companions to people, especially on their own, have become so important. And the emotional side of that we've really felt as veterinary surgeons. It's it's had a huge impact, hasn't it, this whole situation? Mm. I think it's con- going to continue to sort of look that way, particularly over the next few months as we try and negotiate what's going to be a difficult winter ahead as well. Yeah, And yeah. just before we do sort of wrap things up on the programme, Laura, I would like to talk about the uh, the future just for a moment. Um, okay. We know it's going to be quite tricky initially, but by the springtime, there is, of course, that variable of whether there will or won't be a vaccine. But come what may, by this time next year, where is it that you're hoping to be at right? Delvet and what are you really hoping to have achieved by that period? Yeah, so I really hope that um, we can have all the staff there in a safe environment and that we can safely have the clients coming into a consultation room with their pets um, so that they can feel reassured um, and, and that, you know, either there's a vaccine or some kind of um, rapid test. Um, you know, if, if we could have a rapid test for our staff every every week or more than, more than once a week, that, that would be very reassuring for staff in that we could then work in a more normal way within this building. Um, so I think I think really that's where I hope hope we are. But also I think we have learned quite a lot of positive things from this. Mm. Um, so we so from a personal point of view, we we've changed our route around a little bit so that um, the the night vets just come in and work the night and don't work during the day and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and I think that's made a massive difference to the levels of tiredness and and so there are some changes we've made that we would like to keep. Um, we've reduced our working day as well, which the staff are finding um, easier for their work-life balance. Mm. And so we, we know we would 
thinking more about extending our weekend hours but shortening the, the working day, um, which is what we've done during during this period, as, as maybe continuing with some of that. So I think there are some positive things that we've learned. It's given us the opportunity to try things that we've maybe um, shied away from in, uh, before. Um, but I just really want the staff to, to feel safe and that, that you know the, the clients be able to come in and, and see that we're we're doing you know a good job um, and that their animals you know being looked after well. That's exactly it, isn't it? And you mentioned, of course, the fact that it's not all doom and gloom. There are some real positives to sort of take from this with the work-life yeah. balance. And yeah. those are the things that we really do need to sort of learn from and take forward from all of this, because um, there are going to be some positives. There are from every single crisis. And um, that's also something that's going to be very important for everybody to sort of bear in mind going forward to keep the morale high. Um, especially yeah. those, of course, that may be looking at the economic situation and are a bit downhearted about what it's doing to their employment prospects, especially in the mm-hmm generation because there are going to be opportunities out there and it's not all doom and gloom no no it's not we just might have to change mm-hmm. slightly what you thought you were going to do to something slightly slightly different exactly it's all about adapting and that is one of those yeah. key facets of leadership absolutely right and um laura just given just how enlightening it's actually been having you come onto the program to discuss some of the challenges that the profession has been trying to get around over the last few months i actually think that as we start to see the situation developing in the next year it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto mm-hmm. the program with us just to see how things are starting to yeah. sort of take shape yeah. for the winter yes it would be lovely to come back and, and and hopefully with slightly more optimistic news Yes, I would really, really hope there's some more positive news to share because positivity, it is infectious and it does help the morale at this time. And I think we could all really use a dose of that. Um, I've got to say, I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show with us. It's been a real pleasure learning a lot more about what's been going on. And uh, most importantly, until we do hopefully get to touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And I'd extend that to everybody associated with Rydell Vets as well. Thank you very much. And same to you. I'd also like to extend that message to all of our listeners tuning into today's programme. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. Um, Next up on the programme today, we're going to be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia and racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for both charitable and mental health concerns. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. 
Uh, but you know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But 
I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here. 
here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that would that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be that degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was 
sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move as times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed. Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died 
in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah. Well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration. Um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should 
and I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.